we just like realize that it's not an even playing field, like you said, and help to implement change of things that can happen that can make a huge positive impact on a lot of people's lives, we see that it actually doesn't cost us that much. That's Karen Losey, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm Kara Duffy, a business coach and entrepreneur on a mission to help you live your most extraordinary life by showing you anything is possible. People who have mastered freedom, ease, and success, who are living their best and most ridiculous lives, and who are making an impact are often people you've never heard of until now. Democracies and great societies work because citizens participate. As John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, Ask what you can do for your country. Today's guest, Karen Losey, understands the assignment. She's pivoted from a successful career in retail to looking to where she can best be of service to her community, first as a foster parent and soon with her master's degree in social work. In this episode, we discuss her choice to pivot, the realities of kids and families in need, and why we need more people to share their gifts to elevate and create the caring, connected communities we all crave. Welcome to the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I am really excited to have you today because I want to talk about the awesome stuff that you do and that you're, <laughs> you know, back in school grinding for. I want to talk about um, a city that we both love called Boston. Yes. And I just want to talk about what it means to be powerful as a wife and a mom and a figuring life out and making pivots. So before I get too excited and carried away, let's tell everyone who's listening who you are, where you are, and what you're up to. Sure. Um, my name is Karen Losey, and I am here in Boston, Massachusetts, um, best city in the world. I'll challenge anyone on that. <laughs> um, and I am, what am I up to? I am on the end, the tail end of a major transformation of my life. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> um, and it's pretty great. Well, let's dive right into that. So part of what I got so excited about when I had the pleasure of meeting you when I was back in Boston, and I would first want to preface that you were introduced to me as my friend Karen, who loves the podcast. <laughs> well, yes, I've listened to every single episode, um, including the one that posted this morning. Um, but how could I not when you started episode number one with my most favorite powerful lady, Elizabeth McGarry? So I was yes. right from the beginning. And I have to give her credit because that most people hate their first episode. I do not. Like, we did that episode. I looked at my sister and I went, holy shit, this is going to work. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she's a good, she's a good person to start with. And I'm sure we're going to get back to her at some point yeah. during this conversation. You know, she's so great. Well, so what got me excited about you was that you and your husband have decided to, you went through the foster care system. Mm -hmm. It was really emotionally challenging for you guys. You have another son as well. And two others, yeah. Two others, forgive me. Sorry, whichever one son I wasn't counting. Um, and then you have decided because of your experience to dedicate yourself into social work, which I just think is so phenomenal in a time when 
so many people are making choices about how can I like have more, more time, more freedom, more money, more whatever the things are that we think we need to be happy. You're making this pivot to say, no, I need to serve more. Yeah. And that I think is really interesting. So let's go back to the beginning to like kind of catch everyone else up with how did you decide to go back to school and completely change the career trajectory of your life? Yeah. So I love that you um, said the term serve more because I really feel like that that is the, the pie in the sky prize. That's where I want to go and um, to be of service in a different way to my family, my community, my city. Um, and people in general. Um, but we can go back about 20 years. Um, I was a retail girl. I started in retail when I was 16. It was the greatest job to have in the early 2000s um, when retail really was at its height. I was very successful um, doing that job. I, I got promoted really quickly. Um, I loved it. Um, it was all consuming. Um, and it was just really a fun experience. I was lucky enough to work for a company and for a woman in particular who really helped to shape my view of what that work looked like. Um, so it was a competitive world and it was a, a world where, um, you know, the, the dollar mattered. But I also got the opportunity to learn about people and to become a great leader. Um, we did a lot of learning about our employees and um, kind of seeing where they were, where they were strong and building teams. So I got this glimpse into a world of like how you can connect with people to really get a great result. The great result for us at the end of the day happened to be, you know, a 30% increase in sales or whatever it was that we were searching for at the time. Um, but it was awesome. But as we all know, with the retail story over that time, that landscape, it began to change um, and brick and mortar retail began to change quite a bit. Um, and it lost a little bit of that person to person connection that I, I loved so much. Um, it became really stressful. I wasn't, I wasn't feeling successful at home, at work, on the hour and a half commute it took me to get from point A to point B. I knew something had to give. Um, I had also gone through that um, point. I had already had one child. Um, I had three miscarriages um, between my two biological children. And that really kind of shook me that maybe that the stress that I was feeling in this place that I was in wasn't the right place for me anymore. So after the birth of my second biological son, we made that my husband and I made the decision. It was time for me to step back and to stay home for a little while with always the intent of going back to business and going back to retail because I really did love it. Um, and then six years ago, yesterday, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. And I, know, I don't know that we're getting political here, but it shook me in a way that I wasn't quite prepared for. And I remember waking up the next morning and saying to my husband things like, I'm going to fly to South Dakota and like chain myself to the pipeline. And I'm going to go to Washington and fight for people's rights. And he was like, you're cute. That's not going <laughs> to happen. You have these two little kids at home. I love this passion that you now have. And you have all of this background. What do you, you know, let's figure out something else you can do with it. So I said, fine, I won't get on a plane. Um, and I started to kind of take stock of 
what was working for me and what I was really good at and how, and doing research around what that looked like. What I knew at the time was that I was a really good mom. Um, I'm proud to say that. I know that we as women sometimes shy away from saying how good we are at things, but I'm pretty good at it. Um, And then I also am a very privileged person. I had an extra bedroom in my house. So I said, well, you know, what's the best thing that I can do as a stay-at-home mother with an extra bedroom? And that was to become a foster parent. Um, So like almost all foster parents or anyone really, I think that goes into something like that. I, I showed up, you know, day one with my notebook and all of my research. And I was like, I am ready for this and was like star student in the classes. And then I was hit with a ton of bricks about the reality of foster care. Um, we got our first call um, before we were even technically licensed. It came real fast. Um, and they said, well, we're going to get that paperwork through and we have a placement. We need a place for these kiddos. Um, and it happened to be uh, newborn twins. So, um, yeah, we were thrown right into the deep end of foster care. Um, we've been foster parents for about six years um, and it has changed my life um, in a way that I am a more complete person having known these kids. I'm less of a complete person having seen the system that they need to operate within. Um, And I made the decision as the children started to get older and that clock was ticking a little for me to go back to work. I knew that I was changed to the point that I could no longer go back to a business world. Um, So I decided to go back to school um, and I'm getting my master's in social work uh, at Simmons University. It's a really great program. I'm finishing up in May. Um, And that time of going back to school and learning more about the systems and the macro pressures that get put on something like the foster care system um, and other systems that are in our city. I mean, social work, I have now learned, touches literally everything. has allowed me to, I guess, like expand my knowledge about, you know, how someone can be effective in this world. And this is, this is how I want to do it now. And, um, I've been so fortunate and just so privileged to do this work and to kind of grow alongside some really amazing, amazing women, um, some of them in their 40s and they're my age, but so many young women that are just so idealistic and it is awesome to be with them and to watch them grow as clinicians um, and to really be able to see, you know, the future of mental health in the city. And I think it's looking pretty good from where Mm -hmm. I sit. So that's where I am today. (laughs) Well, I love that. And I cannot wait for for May to come for you. So you can just have that sigh of relief, but I'm sure also be like jumping right into something else where you're like, oh shit, now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That part I've actually been thinking about, oh, I need to like get a job again and, you know, do real things. It won't be just all reading journal articles and writing papers, which I also love if I can yeah. plug going back to school in your 40s it is awesome your brain is so good um and it, there's just a different kind of investment I have loved mm-hmm. every second of being in school so yeah 
I, that's amazing. Well, something I'd love to dig in with a little bit with you, and it might get a little political. So if anyone listening gets offended by that, then this probably isn't your podcast in general. Yeah, but sorry. Um, so I had uh, literally this morning, 8 a.m., I had a client call before a day of podcasting, and we were talking about everyone's money stories and how there are so many stories about money is bad or is money good and being rich is bad and being poor is bad or whatever those things are that we have decided as individuals in a society around money. Mm-hmm. And they made this statement of, you know, I don't, it's impossible in America for someone to do anything with their life if they haven't been privileged. And I said, okay, I'm going to challenge that because I think any human born has a lot of power and it's micro choices. And at any moment you can choose to change your life. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean anyone's going to help you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think like where people get so stuck in, in this U.S. idea that this is individuals and you can pick yourself up by the bootstraps. It's like, yeah, you can, and it's not a level playing field. Yeah. What has surprised you most about the inequalities or the lack of access that people truly have um, who need it? Yeah, I I struggle with this quite a bit um, as a privileged white woman um, who has benefited from generational wealth um, in the city of Boston a place that is deeply, deeply divided. um, So both racially and socioeconomically. Poverty is, I think, the biggest um, challenge of our society. Um, And while we do have a narrative in this country of people being able to, you know, change their life and, you know, pick themselves up by their bootstraps, And that's this like wonderful narrative, like great story that we tell as the American dream. There are so many people that are working that hard and are trying to change their life and are making the best choices. And yet they still can't put food on the table or they can't get their kid to daycare. And, you know, I know you're in Southern California. It's very similar to um, the Northeast in that like the, the prices to just live basically are almost impossible if you don't have an advanced degree. I'm not even talking a college degree anymore. It is an, you need an advanced degree and 15 years of experience to, you know, make it here. And what I see with families that I work with, um, both with the Department of Children and Families, and now I'm working um, at an organization called the Children's Advocacy Center of Suffolk County, um, which is a wonderful organization. What I see is that when children and families in particular are having a traumatic experience, they almost aren't even allowed to feel the trauma. They're not allowed to experience those things because they have to worry about where they're going to get their next meal. Um, And I think that the power that we have is to be able to, first of all, talk about it because it's, it's not shameful to have money. I think, well, I have some opinions about billionaires, but um, (laughs) billionaires, like for most people, capital B billionaires. Yeah. Yeah. For most people, 
if we just like realize that it's not an even playing field, like you said, and help to implement change of things that can happen that can make a huge positive impact on a lot of people's lives, we see that it actually doesn't cost us that much, either monetarily or as a society to make those things happen. My favorite example of that is here in Boston, um, about seven years ago, it was figured out that um, it cost more money to process the paperwork to give kids free lunch than it did to give every kid free lunch. Like, so what they did was they just stopped doing the paperwork part and like applying for these grants and doing all this stuff. And for the last seven years, they've just get every kid free lunch and um, breakfast every day. No questions asked. Like you don't need the weird little card um, to go up and get it. And what they've seen is an increase in test scores an increase in graduation rates and increase in um, attendance. So those little things that help even the playing field make such a huge difference. And if we want our people, or we want our kids and our families to succeed, these are the little tweaks that have to be made and we just have to take better care of each other. Well, and, and I think that from a psychological standpoint, because I have a lot of opinions about the education system and how we sort people mm-hmm. in a negative way and label mm-hmm. them in a negative way, when you no longer have the card that says your family is not good enough mm-hmm. and like, oh, everyone's getting free lunch. Like it's no longer, it's one less thing to remind you that you might be different right, or less right. than. Right. And, and when that goes away, it's like, even there's always debate about like, do uniforms help in schools? Yes or no. Well, I don't know. Are we taking away another reason for someone to think that they're different than somebody else in a bad way, right? Everyone, I do think we have to balance celebrating that everyone is unique and special, but that, but if we can get rid of all the, the bullshit around yeah. what kids attach to themselves at such a young age, that is, becomes compounding as we become adults. Mm-hmm. Like, why not? Like, right. I love that example. Yeah. It's awesome. And even during the um, the pandemic, what they did was that every family got um, an EBT card, which is like the government SNAP benefits, um, just in the mail. Like, here you go. You don't, you're not at school. So go buy your own groceries and, you know, we're going to pay for it. And it was just, like you said, like a, just this little tweak that stopped othering people for a deficiency. Um, and I think the more we can celebrate people's uniqueness the better off we're all going to be and the more compassion we'll have for each other and the more excitement we'll have to diversify. Well, and I think the, so often when the argument is being made that every resource you need to have a great life is in America, we're talking about good days. And you mentioned the trauma and the bad days. Mm -hmm. And for the simple fact that we don't have standardized vacation time or family leave. Mm-hmm. If your kid gets sick, if you work an executive job, you just work from home or you take yeah. a couple of days off. It's not a big deal. If your kid is sick and you are doing a, you're a housekeeper or you are working at a hotel or you are like whatever the job is where you don't have all those flexibilities, mm-hmm. it is a crisis yeah. because you don't, you the now can't send your kid to school which means you have to find someone to watch them, which means you're not going to get paid that day because you're an mm-hmm. hourly paid employee. Like it just keeps, instead of that one impact has a tenfold effect. 
Yeah. Instead of it just being like every, you know, everyone else in quotes, like just stay home. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) And we saw that disparity during the pandemic. I was really fortunate to be working at the Department of Children and Families in the 2021. I don't even Mm -hmm. know what year it is anymore. (laughs) Um, And I became like, I kind of crowned myself the um, daycare voucher queen. Um, I was really good. This is where my business side comes in. I'm really good at paperwork. Um, So I would fill out, you know, for families that came, you know, kind of in our, our realm, um, fill out their daycare voucher. And the second you hand a young woman escaping from a domestic violence situation, a daycare voucher, her life changes. And it was so amazing to watch these transformations happen in such a short amount of time. I had one client that went back to school. Um, she got her GED. She was able to kind of enroll in like a secondary cosmetology situation. And she was, and she got housing. All of these things started to snowball because she had daycare. Um, and I think it was Elizabeth Warren that said, we need to start treating day, things like daycare, like infrastructure, like because it's just as important as a bridge in getting to work. It is a bridge. Uh, It's the first bridge you have to cross. Like I don't have kids yet, but I know, but when I moved to Germany, I was freaking out about what to do with my dog when I traveled. Yeah. So imagine moving like just like every day you're like, I have to put food on the table and I need to make sure that that human doesn't die. And in fact, is thriving. Who can help me? And like, I'm, I'm sure you've watched The Help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just that first episode was crushing to mm-hmm. see like all she needed was daycare. Yep. That was it. All she yep. needed was daycare. Like daycare can change people's lives. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely can. And it changes the kids' lives too, because there are so many studies that show like early um, bonding with other children and, you know, in a loving and supportive environment is so great. And we, whether we like it or not, have a very academically driven society. And those kids that get a little taste of that academics sooner do better in the structured school system that we have. If that's something we want to go away from someday, which I would support, um, great, but that's where we are now. And I think sometimes working within the system um, and learning to tweak it and change it is the the work that we have to do, um, whether we like it or not. Um, and that's kind of where I'm going. And with the school lunch example, did all kids get, all kids got the school lunch? Every kid. Did it matter how much your kid. parents earned? Nope. Your parents earn a million dollars. Your parents are, you know, have nothing or aren't disability. Every kid got the same thing. When it, the thing... Living in Europe was very eye-opening for me because I got to live in a, what people call a socialist society, Mm -hmm. and it did not feel strange. Mm -hmm. It actually felt like every human was valued Mm -hmm. because when it, it, it's, I got to see what Germany said they care about as a culture. Yeah. Everyone gets a minimum of four weeks vacation because we want you to have time to rejuvenate and be with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone got healthcare. We want everyone to be healthy. Everyone got access to some form of education. Like we want everyone, if they want to, to be able to go to school if they want to. Like it was, it shifted how 
I saw people doing their jobs. Yeah. Like even um, the garbage collectors, mm-hmm. they all had uniforms. They were super clean. They would always put the garbage thing uh, things back exactly neat. They mm-hmm. would like there was pride in doing all of the tasks that we don't associate pride with often in the U.S. Yeah. And I think it was because they were like, yeah, my kid can go to school. I have healthcare. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I guess what? We have pensions. Crazy idea. And like, like we get the vacation time. Like we're valued as a human versus mm-hmm. not. Yeah. And it was such a shift. And they have daycare included as well. But like of it was course. such a shift of like, what would it be like if instead of it, it the story being pitched as either you can, like you don't deserve it, you haven't worked hard enough for it. Right. To everyone in this community gets these things. Yeah. And what I hear you say is this idea of value. Um, And we have a value in social work um, that is the dignity and worth of a person. Um, And it's one of our ethical standards that we have to abide by in this work. And it's a touch point for me every time I meet with a person or a family to say, like, am I treating them with worth? Am I treating them with dignity? Um, And if I'm not, or if society isn't, how can I change that? Because it makes a big difference. Well, and why isn't that what we as states and nations have as a priority? Right. Like, I don't, like, when we look at the things that we're talking about, it's like, guys, great that that's your concern, but um, how are you making my everyday better? And I hate the argument that we're taking things away from people, like in the healthcare conversation. I'm like, we shouldn't need insurance. Right. So let's just get rid of the all everyone's insurance can go away and we can all have health care. And that's why I wanted to clarify with the school lunch example because we're we're everyone gets more. Yeah. Every <laughs> single person. Everyone. So yeah. we all get more. It's this this scarcity mindset that we have in a country with such abundance mm-hmm. is maybe the biggest scam that yeah. is going on. And I think it comes um, from this idea of individualism that we so value as a culture. And I didn't grow up that way. So I grew up in a very small neighborhood in Boston um, that was connected centrally to a church. Um, I grew up with, I don't know, 12 grandmothers because every woman on the street was my grandmother's best friend. And they were all widows and raised, I don't know, 14 children each or something. But there was this (laughs) sense of like community and mutual aid that I saw go on. Like if somebody needed, I don't know, wallpaper put up, fine. If somebody needed a date, you know, a a doctor or something like you knew somebody or, you know, whatever it was, um, it was available. Somebody figured it out. And what I'm able to see in hindsight was this team community mentality that exists in a lot of places, but we have stopped relying on it. Um, and we've stopped, you know, asking our neighbors for something, or we've stopped like offering, you know, whatever we have. Um, and I, I still have glimpses of it, glimpses of it here, um, in my community. I still live on the same street that both me and my dad grew up on. So, um, we still get a little bit of that, uh, community piece, but it's changing and it's, it's sad. Um, because I think mutual aid goes so far and just helping the person who's next to you, um, 
you know, can make such a huge difference. I think somebody said it was a foster care advocate. Um, I can't remember who said it, but it was one of those things. Like if somebody walked up to your front door and knocked and had a baby in their arms and said, this baby needs somewhere to go, nobody would say no. It just wouldn't be a thing. So why, why do we say no if it's not right in front of us? You know, um, so I like to put these things in front of people as much as I can. <laughs> well, and it's, you, you know, there's that idea in, in anthropology that there's like 150 people that we can feel mm-hmm. connected to. So I do know that there's so much power in bringing it down to the town and the street and the neighborhood yes. level. Um, and I do think that there is a slightly different approach to neighborliness in places that have extreme weather than not Mm -hmm. because it's so common to like someone on the street is going to have to shovel the old lady's sidewalk and driveway and steps it's just a matter of who's going to get there first like that's it's not an option when you know that that's who lives there and when it's a, a blizzard and you run out of diapers or something else like you have to go next door and ask or yeah like you're phoning your friend and I think everyone is craving that connection within their communities. And I don't think people know how to initiate it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, the pandemic definitely didn't help. Um, again, this kind of idea of individualism and money equaling success, I can even see trickling down to young kids. Like it used to be, you went and shoveled the old lady's car out because you shoveled it out and that was what was expected. And now you do it for $25. And, you know, I try to not have my children do that um, because they are very able-bodied young men who have <laughs> everything they could ever need. So they're, they don't need to take the $25 from the old lady. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's really hard to kind of foster that sense of community um, when we're all, you know, looking down at our screen or, you know, um, kind of insulated in our own lives. Um, And I think that that, I think women bear such a huge weight on that because I think we're expected to be the gate holders of the community, but if we don't know how to find it, um, then it all kind of comes tumbling down. Um, and that's hard. Well, and I think a discussion that's been popping up more frequently, um, with other women on this podcast or other female oriented events I've been going to is the fact that women are so thankful that we have the right to work in America. And as a society, we were not responsible for all the jobs that women were doing that we didn't bother to figure out who was going to do them instead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like there's a huge um, gap right now in Orange County, one of the most privileged places on the planet, but also the county with the highest income disparity in the entire U.S. Mm -hmm. There's a huge gap in school volunteers because it used to be that the wealthy women or whatever moms were staying home could volunteer, Mm -hmm. but now they're working. Or if they're not working, they're filling their schedule with faux working things like being on boards of this and that and making their day look like a career scheduled day. And so there's no one to come in and like do the Halloween party or to go on field trips. And it's the weirdest 
no one expected it. Right. Yeah. I can definitely see that. And, you know, I had one of those moms and I have been lucky to sometimes be one of those moms. I don't like volunteering at school. (laughs) I find it really stressful um, with all those screaming kids. My husband actually does all the um, field trips and things. But um, I, I think part of it is the expectation is different for stuff like that, too. So I agree with you. I think it was definitely a privileged thing when um, and, and this goes for anything. It's not just schools and kids, but any sort of volunteer things. Um, you could go to the library and you could read to people or you could go and, you know, sit with, you know, people at a nursing home or, you know, be the school mom or whatever. Um, and then those things started to elevate. So you had to like bake the best cookies or, you know, read Tolstoy or I don't know, like it just (laughs) kept raising the bar that it became so unattainable to even want to bother. Um, And schools have become, and most institutions, again, I don't want to like limit this to just schools and kids, but most institutions have become so regulated that sometimes you can't even fit that time in of like just having an un- um, Unqual- I don't want to say unqualified, and but a, a non-specialized person come in and help. That's a civilian. It almost doesn't make a civilian. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm sure you have to have like 12 nursing degrees now to go and read to, you know, people at a nursing home. It's hard. Uh, yeah, it's it's a a friend of mine is getting their master's in art therapy, mm. and they're sharing a frustration they're having right now because it's so regimented, like how Mm -hmm. long you can be talking to someone like at the, the facility they're at. And they'll be like, we'll just be starting to open up this space and it's happening. And they're like, okay, time to move on. And you're like, I need five more minutes. Like, sorry, no. And there's, again, like it's, it's become so over extremed. Imagine how many other places we're spending too much money on paperwork besides school inches. Like, right. When, 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 at what point are people allowed to say like, this is dumb. How do we simplify this? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, let's just, as my grandmother would have said, like, just sit down and have a cup of tea. Well, it'll be okay. Like, we'll figure it out, you know? Yeah. And, and I also imagine that there's not a lot of crossover. Like there's probably a lot of paperwork to fill out for every different social service you need because there's not like a master debt database. Like, that's another thing I don't understand. Even myself going to a doctor. Mm-hmm. Why am I filling out a piece of paper ever again? Mm-hmm. We all have computers. I can fill it out once. I'm sure. Like, how do I get everything? Give, give me my own Google folder, please. Yeah. That yeah. you can all see. Because this is ridiculous. <laughs> and such a waste of trees and time yeah. and pens. And oh, it's like. There was someone recently who um, was talking about like filling out applications and they're like, I just stopped because of the application. (laughs) Yeah, we do. um, For the families that we serve now, like we have um, this whole sheet of mental health services and you have to call every single service. And I was like, isn't there like a database or something? Like we have the ability in this country. We have the technology. We have the people who can implement that. And I, I don't know where they are or what they're doing, but we need to get more of them to serve, you know, because these, I think, and that's where I see such a huge value in like this kind of crossover from business is that I'm armed with tools that 
can implement change in high systems. And I, I can already feel like my brain kind of twirling around like organizational development and, you know, um, structure and scheduling and all of these things that, um, the people that have been working in organizations like, you know, social services, they don't have time or the brain power or the energy at this point to think outside the box. And I, I would challenge more people, um, who maybe are at a crossroad with their, um, with their life to think of ways um, that they can utilize their expertise um, in a new way and to give new eyes to something because it's pretty great. Well, and there's so many best practices Mm -hmm. that don't require huge investments to implement. Right. Like just so many things. Like it's the same with like the IRS when you're like, Mm -hmm. why are we sending actual papers anywhere ever again? I saw this like meme or I don't know. I don't even know what those things are called. And it was like (laughs) taxes, fill out like all this paperwork about every single thing you've ever done. And if it's a test and if we already know the answers, but if you mess up, you go to jail. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And that's another thing where it's like, I'm so pro like a flat tax rate, Mm -hmm. like 10%, everybody, it's fine. Just take my 10%. And I don't, no questions asked. I don't need to, nope. I'll, yeah. the, the calculations make it so overwhelming that people have to be specialized in this. That seems really unnecessary. Yeah. Like yeah. let's, let's move their energy into helping into other things. something else, please. Yeah. Probably the biggest learning that I have, that I've made or I've had in this journey um, has really been that I am not here to serve children. Um, I'm here to serve families. And when you take in, so with the foster care system, you know, there are 400,000 children in the foster care system. But when you, I think we do a disservice by saying that foster care is about children Um, because it truly is. If you decide to foster, you decide to foster the entire family. Um, And that is mom, dad, aunts, uncles, uh, cousins, siblings, um, their other caseworker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like all of the, the entire thing. And, um, it's been a real, it's a challenge to do that because you're, you're the outsider. You're the person that is disrupting or helping to disrupt. Um, and I think that having that mental kind of clarity around why I'm there and what I'm doing, um, has really helped me grow. Um, and really pushed me into the social work world um, because I want to help change that narrative for families because every family matters. And I have, I've met a lot of families. I've met a lot of kids. There is not a parent in this world that does not love their child. And I've been challenged on that. And people have said, oh, but what about this case? And what about this case? And I'm like, I understand that, but that love is there. And if we as a society and as a system can put in structures and scaffolding and support to lift this family up and to help them in their time of extreme need, then we should do that because it's just the right thing to do. So, well, and I feel like there's a lot of parallels between 
the foster between foster care and ending up in jail. And both of them are outputs of many, many decisions or traumas before then yeah. or challenges. And to your point of how, like the game should be, how do we prevent foster care from being needed? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we, how do we, like, how do we keep working backwards mm-hmm. and, and shoring up the next challenge? And of course, we'll never get all of them shored up because it's maybe humanly impossible, but there's a lot of things that can get changed and prevented and, you know, giving people free breakfast and free lunch is a big deal. It's a big deal. <laughs> it sounds so small, but it is such a big deal. And I'm going to misquote the um, statistic because I, I don't have that statistic in my head, but it is the statistics about inmates and people in the prison system that have been through foster care are just unbelievable it's i don't it's like 70 percent. it's a very high correlation yeah very Mm -hmm. high Mm -hmm. and um and of course children who have been bounced around and have part you know difficult attachment with people and have been left behind at school and didn't get a free lunch and didn't you know we're basically like said like figure it out of course they're gonna you know go to drugs or they're gonna steal a car or they're gonna figure out a way to survive. Um, And one of the things we talk about in social work a lot is that there are things that we consider protective and positives. So if somebody is stealing food, that's considered like, oh, they figured out how to eat today. Like it's it's a skill. And in our society, it's not one that we are celebrating, but it's still a skill. And that person is still utilizing their brain to stay alive every day. And um the things that people have to do to just live another day are too hard in a country like this. Um, and we make it way too difficult. We, we, yeah, it's, are we setting up families and people for success? No. And there's just, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity I have to work with Casa Orange County. So good. And well, it, it's, I really don't do anything besides show up to meetings and help fundraise and things like that. But there's, I'm so thankful for the exposure Mm -hmm. to what's really happening Mm -hmm. and forgetting that setting people up for success is not just, did they have breakfast and lunch? It's, do they know how to deposit checks? Do Mm -hmm. they know um, how to create a resume? Do they mm-hmm. know what is expected of them as a functioning adult in society and how we prepared them for it? Yeah. And there's so many things that we just assume people know and they don't. Like, and, and I think that there's becoming an awakening of how what we think people know is starting to also show up in the middle class mm-hmm. more and more and more. Um, because there's so many things about f- like financial literacy that are causing the average American, I think, or family to have like less than 4,000 in savings when yeah. generation ago, two generation ago, that would have been scandalous. Yeah. <laughs> so there's so many things that we're thinking this knowledge is getting passed around and it's not. And we're thinking that access is getting passed around and it's not. So, mm-hmm. um, I think I think how we're changing from a social perspective in this country and including and sharing and serving is going to be really interesting in 
the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you. I, there's, it's so easy to look at, you know, the negatives that are happening and to listen to the noise. And, um, I also see a propelling of people moving forward in a different way. Um, I am so incredibly blessed to live, um, in Massachusetts with people like Elizabeth Warren and Ayanna Presley. And, um, when I think about women like that and the work that they're doing, I know they wouldn't have necessarily done it in the same way and the same capacity had we not been in this place. So I think 20 years from now, 30 years from now, a generation from now, we will look back at this time and whether we come out on the right side of history or the wrong, I don't know yet, but something is happening. Something is churning. There, there are wheels going and, um, I'm excited for where it's going to bring us because we're not stagnant. I can say that. So let's move on then okay. to what makes Boston and Massachusetts great. Do I need to sing like dirty water? Right. Do I need to talk about the Red Sox? I don't like, okay. So I am, like I said, multiple generation on the same street. I am one of those that is a true, true, like to my heart, Bostonian. And I think for me, what makes it great is it's a small city. Um, it's, I always call it a walkable city, although there are places that are too far for me to walk, but um, <laughs> unlike places like LA and New York and Chicago, which I know are really great vibrant cities, this feels small enough to tackle. Um, and I love the seasons. Um, you caught me on a good time because I don't love the seasons in March when it's still snowing. Um, but we have the, we have perfection of all four. So sometimes just a glimpse of them. Um, but you cannot beat fall in New England and you cannot beat that two weeks of spring where everything is perfect. Um, I love Boston for all of those reasons that you just mentioned about being at the forefront of universal healthcare and gay marriage and universal free lunch and, the access to education is unparalleled. Um, you throw a stone and you hit a college um, or you hit a university. And we were the first to do all of that. And I think while there are definitely some traditions that are entrenched that need to go away, um, it is still a, a hub of innovation and of knowledge. Um, and that is a huge value that you can feel um, no matter where you go. And then I also love the diversity of the city. Um, I take the train every day and I can sit next to, you know, lifelong Bostonians. I can sit next to somebody who's here from India. I can sit next to somebody whose family comes from Japan. It doesn't matter. There are so many different people, um, who live here and it's starting to integrate, um, more. It is still a highly divided place. Um, but I think that we're doing a better job. Uh, lately. And I feel really good about it. Um, my kids feel really good about it. And what else? I'm supposed to say things about the Patriots and the Red Sox <laughs> because I'm sure my family will listen at some point. So yay, sport. Um, it is it is one of those things though that brings you together. So um, my parents travel a lot in their retirement and my dad is a 
you know, lifelong Red Sox fan. He wears that hat everywhere, all over the world. And he will always get stopped um, by somebody who is either from New England or from Boston or knows somebody or, um, so it's, it's definitely a place of connection. Um, and it gives us a sense of community, even on this wider scope, um, when we rally around things like these teams. So I do appreciate them for what they do. I don't follow it, but. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the thing that I miss the most about living in Boston, two things. One was that there were so many opportunities to participate. Mm -hmm. So many volunteer opportunities, so many sports to play as an adult, so many just groups like hip hop class and this and that, like my schedule was full of fun things at that time. And I just felt like there was, it was easy to keep meeting and expanding with like bigger groups of people. Um, and I haven't had that same feeling since I've Mm. ever left. And the other part that I love is that people, if you go out in Boston, you will talk to strangers. Yes. And you might get into heated debates with strangers and then buy each other drinks and it's okay. Yeah. But like you, there's like this, this, and I don't know if it's like a hangover from like just how Boston is and education and discussion and debating things. Like there's a reason I think why in that Northeast corridor, like a lot of that exists there since Mm -hmm. pre-revolutionary time. But (laughs) there's this idea of like, we are here to discuss things. Like people are meant to discuss things and debate things. And through talking about it, we connect and build community and, and make better choices. Um, and it's definitely not that way here. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of conversations happening, but they're much more private. Like it'd be really weird mm-hmm. to talk to a stranger at a bar about politics or mm. an opinion you have mm-hmm. <laughs> about something. Um, and the other thing about living here is if you go to an Angels game or a Dodgers game and they're playing the Red Sox or the Yankees, this stadium will be more filled with those hats yes. than local. And I'm like, that is a shame. <laughs> and like, I mean, it's, I'm all about like rooting for the home team when they're not playing your team, but like it, to go to a Red Sox angels game here, like the stadium is Red Sox. Yeah. And they We're are everywhere. not flying in. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, I like that when you go to Boston, it's like, Oh no, no, we're cheering for Boston. So yeah. There might not be another team here except on the field. Yeah. 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 But there's just we, like this level of community and commitment and like filling it up. Like people are showing up to be like, this is our city. This is what it stands for. Yeah. And we have that like ownership. Like it, you're so proud to be from here. I think for a lot of people, I know I am. Um, and I, I spent, you know, before having kids, before kind of realizing I like, being here, I, I wanted to travel. I wanted to go places and everywhere I went, I was like, that's nice. Nope. I want to go home. Um, and I think, you know, having such deep roots here, um, you know, helps me too, but, um, that sense of community is huge in a place like Boston and I think unrivaled. So I'm going to (laughs) stay. You're welcome to come back anytime. Thank you. Yes. Um, it's been a big debate lately because mm. when I um, was back the time I saw you, then I was mm-hmm. back on the East Coast for six weeks after that as well. Um, it's the first time that I've been back on the East Coast and I thought it might be time to come back. Yeah. For I, how it's been a long time since I've almost tw- 
15 years at least since I've lived in the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Maybe longer at this point because I'm getting so old. But, um, (laughs) and like up to this point, I've been like, nah, it's like it wasn't the right fit and things. So I think it'll be interesting what shakes out in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say give it more than a couple of months because if you wait until April, (laughs) yeah, wait until April because that decision is not a good one to make in like February when we're all cranky. And I will say that is another New England thing that we do better than anyone is complain about the weather. And that I think is that topic of conversation that unites us, whether it's, you know, like you said, politics, the Red Sox and the weather, like you can get anyone in the city talking and we complain about everything all the time. It was 70 degrees the other day and I was like, "Mm, it's really hot. (laughs) <laughs> in November, 70 degrees in November was too hot for me, but yeah, it is warm. <laughs> yeah, it is warm in November. Yeah. Well, when you think about the words powerful and ladies, what do they mean to you? And do their definitions change when those words are next to each other? I first think about my grandmother, um, and her group of women, um, because they had such a powerful bond. And I think that that's where, that's the word I look for when I think of powerful ladies, it's a bond. I think that we as women go through the world connected um, in a very special way. Um, And when we tap into that connection, our power and our influence is really has no bounds. Um, So I don't want to separate them. I want to keep them together. Um, And I, I've been so fortunate to have women in my life that have shown me what those bonds look like and have shown me how to build them with others. And, um, you know, I'm learning every day how to reinforce them. Um, and I hope to continue to do that. I love that. Um, we also ask everyone on the podcast where they put themselves in the powerful ladies scale. If zero is average everyday human, And 10 is the most powerful lady you've ever met uh, or imagined. Where would you put yourself on that scale today and on any other day? So you mentioned at the beginning that you were introduced to me as a um, fan of this podcast. So I've been nervous about this question leading up (laughs) for like months. I've been thinking about it. And my answer is zero. And the reason for that is because through this journey and this evolution that I've been on for the past 10 years, what I have seen is that those everyday normal people sometimes make the biggest impact. And I'm actually striving to be as everyday normal as I can um, because I want to be part of this micro change Um, in people's lives. I've been part of a macro change before, um, but it's those micro everyday little things that we do, I think that can really help to change the world. Your your zero is approved. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. I was really nervous about it. (laughs) Um, You know, what are you excited about for this next year? I'm going to graduate in May. Thank goodness. Um, it's been a long process. I'm, I'm just really excited to have that check mark. Um, and then I'm really excited to begin a new career, um, 
with a different sense of purpose. Um, I heard a quote the other day from Viola Davis um, that said she, that she was thinking about her life and she said, I no longer want to lead a successful life. I want to lead a sustainable life. And it just hit me right in the gut. Um, so what I see for myself for this next chapter is this sustainability to do some of the hard work um, and I'm ready for it and I'm amped for it and I'm excited for it. Um, and I really think I'm going to be good at it. I love that. Um, and the last question that I've been asking everybody is, what do you need? How can we help you? What's on your wish list? Oh, that's a tough one too. I, I need more people to ask questions. I need more people to wonder and to be curious about what's happening in their own backyard. Um, I want people to be okay with failing and to be okay with messing up um, because it's within those spaces that we learn the most. Um, and I want people to smile at each other more and look at, look each other in the eye um, when they're walking down the street. I think that sense of you know, engagement and community um, cannot be devalued. And um, the more we do that, the better off we're all going to be. Well, it has been such a pleasure to hang out with you tonight, to have you on the podcast. And I am so thankful for the work that you're doing and the service that you've dedicated yourself to. These are conversations that I want more and more people to be having and to just take a moment to go and see what it's really like. Yeah. Go see what it's really like, because there's so much judgment happening when no one has gone through the experience. Mm -hmm. No one knows anyone who has gone through the experience. And it, it changes you when you um, are able to see it firsthand and remove a lot of the nonsense yeah. that is used strictly for media marketing purposes. And mm -hmm. It's, it's just, it's not true and it's not helping the people who need the help. Yeah. Um, so thank you for the work you're doing. Thank, thank you for you. being awesome. And I can't wait to get back to Boston and hang out with yes. you and, and miss, miss Elizabeth because um, you guys are great. We'll go out on the boat again. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a great day. That was like one of the best days this summer. I thought I was like, yeah, this is just perfect. Like it was perfect. Even the ridiculous rain afterwards. <laughs> I don't which, think my sneakers ever survived that. <laughs> no, and I have not laughed that hard in such a long time. Like Same. deep laughter, like of this is insane and yes. perfect all at the same time. All at the same time. It was I awesome. also will not forget the looks that people gave us trying to walk into that restaurant. <laughs> like like I have not Dripping. been that like I would have been less wet if I had jumped in the harbor. Yes. So like I don't even know where all the water was coming from. Like it just we looked we were basically the same thing as like swamp thing trying to come yeah. into a restaurant and they were like mm. I don't think so and I agree with you I haven't I haven't laughed that hard in a long time and it was needed and yeah I need to do more of that so <laughs> yeah exactly um and when I realized I have one more question yeah. for people who are considering being foster parents mm-hmm do you recommend it should they do they need to like what should they think about should they do it um, it's really different for everybody. I think you have to dig down real deep and decide why you want to do it. Um, because there, 
there really are so many kids that need support and need help. And it is not easy um, to be that person in somebody's life. Um, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of um, people you can follow on Instagram and people, you know, and you can call your local department of children and families and say, Hey, I want to talk to somebody and believe me, foster parents will talk to you and they will (laughs) because God knows there aren't enough of us. So we recruit any minute we can get. Um, And then if you decide that that's not something you want to do or can't, or don't have the capacity in the moment to do, that's okay too. Um, Volunteering, raising money, raising awareness, posting something on social media, like any little thing helps in the end. Um, and the more, the more we're talking about it. So I appreciate you so much in bringing up some of this conversation, the more we talk about it, um, you know, the more help we can give and the less shameful and stigma kind of comes associated with it. Amazing. Well, for anyone who wants to follow you, support you, and maybe hire you, um, (laughs) how, how can they find you? Um, I am, I am a infrequent visitor on Instagram these days. Um, at Kalos451 um, or my email address, I guess, which you can post, I think. Yeah, um, put in the show notes. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. You want me to. <laughs> That's totally fine. Um, I am, you know, an open book when it comes to talking about things like foster care and um, social work and um, really, any, or at the Red Sox, I guess I can talk to people <laughs> about that too. Um, and yeah, I'd love to connect with people, so. Well, again, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. I can't wait to hear people's reaction to this episode. And yeah, just thank you for being a yes to me and everyone else. Thank you. And thank you for all the work you do that you're my favorite of all the podcasts. Yay. Listen every week. All the links to connect with Karen are in our show notes at thepowerfulladies.com. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review. Come join us on Instagram at Powerful Ladies. And if you're looking to connect directly with me, please visit caraduffy.com or Kara underscore Duffy on Instagram. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, I hope you're taking on being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love.